chapter 2 is where we are this morning. Judges chapter 2. We began uh, studying this book a couple weeks ago, did a little introduction, did a little overview. Uh, Last week, we actually dove into chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, and we saw what it looks like, the road that we would look, uh, live on and look like if we were to compromise like the Israelites did. If you want to compromise, if you want to make a mess out of your life, then number one, just do what God commands, just not the way He requires it. We saw that in chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Number two, make excuses for not doing what God requires. The people made excuses. Oh, they have uh, iron chariots. They have things that we cannot overcome with military might. We just, we can't do this. Make excuses and you will continue on the road of compromise. Number three, uh, verses 27 to 36 in chapter one, do what God requires, but just do it half-heartedly. Just half obedience, and you will continue down the road of compromise. And when you are confronted, chapter two, verses one through five, just don't repent. When you're confronted with your disobedience, as the people of Israel were in chapter two, verses one through five, just do not repent. Just weep, mourn over your sin, mourn over the consequences, but don't Repent. That is the pathway for the road of compromise, the road of disobedience, and ultimately the road of apostasy, of just finally turning your back on God altogether. This morning we dive into chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, and it's a second introduction. It's a second introduction. It's really a trailer for the book of Judges. Some of you Excited when the trailer for, what's the new Marvel person? Drew, who's the new, do you know? Captain Marvel. Captain Mar- oh, thank you. Thank you, Josh. The new Marvel person is Captain Marvel. Thank you. Some of you are excited when that preview came out. This is a preview for the entire book of Judges. This is a trailer. This gives us snapshots. This kind of tells us what the story is going to be, but it doesn't give us everything. It just gives us roadmaps inside of the story. It's a second introduction, but it's not only an introduction, it's a summary statement for the whole book. I don't know if you ever did those things called Mad Libs. Do you guys remember those, Mad Libs? We used to do those in in car rides, uh, driving places, and we'd be yelling, hey, uh, give me an adjective, and we'd have to write in the adjective. You guys remember Mad Libs? There's a paragraph with a bunch of parenthetical statements that were missing that you had to fill in. Give me a pronoun, give me an adjective, give me a noun, give me a color, give me something. This is a Mad Lib of the book of Judges. What we're going to do from this point forward is just take this, give me a people group that's enslaving the Israelites, and we'll plug it in. Give me a sin that they were involved in, and we'll plug it in. We'll see this cycle of sin, because there's a blank for every single point on this five-fold cycle of sin. It's a preview, it's a Mad Lib that will plug everything in and Lord willing, this morning what we'll do is the introduction of this sermon is going to be this second introduction in this book, and then I want to use it with the first judge in the book of Judges, okay? We're going to look at the final introduction in the book of Judges, chapter 2 all the way into chapter 3, and then we're going to look at the first judge of Israel in this book. His name is Othniel, very short, very succinct, and we'll plug and play every single aspect into Othniel's reign in Israel. But let's read verses 6 through 10, ask the Lord's blessing on our time, and then we'll dive in together. Judges chapter 2, verse 6, when Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went each to his inheritance to possess the land. 
The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in timnath Harris, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Father, we ask that you would consecrate these moments as we look into your word. We want to grow in our understanding of who you are, but we don't want to be like the people of Israel who knew about God but did not know him. God, help us to know you, to love you more than anything in this world. May this not be an academic exercise. May this target our emotions, our affections, our will, our desires, what it is that we love most, because that is the battleground for idolatry. And we, just like the Israelites, struggle with false gods in our lives every day. So Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see and to know and to love and to cherish our great God. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Verses 6 through 10 give us uh, the introduction to this second introduction. And it starts in this preview with the death of Joshua. But there's something very troubling about this paragraph because there's a generation that's dying out. This generation had amazing leadership. They had Joshua as their leader, and they are dying out. But we know that the generation that's dying out, though they had amazing leadership, they still obeyed half-heartedly. We saw that last week. They followed God, but not exactly the way that God required. So the question is, what would it look like if a generation had no spiritual leadership? We see what it looks like if a generation had spiritual leadership. That generation still did half of what God required. What's it going to look like if an idolatrous generation would not have any spiritual leader? And the answer to that question is, it's the book of Judges. This is what that looks like. Notice in verse 10, after Joshua dies, all the, nation, all the generation die along with him in that generation, and there arose another after them who did not know the Lord. They knew about him, but they did not know him. This is exactly like we saw in our Bible studies this week when we were looking at the list of names as Jesus calls 12 disciples to himself. He calls 12 people to follow him closely, spending every second of every day with him for three and a half years. And as he's calling these people, one of those people is Judas. And Judas spent three and a half years closer to Jesus than almost every single person on the planet. And yet you can be very close to Jesus and be very far away from him. You can be very close to God, just like the people of Israel were. They knew who God was. They knew about him, but they did not love him. As I read this, I, I just couldn't help but think about how the older generation seems to have failed in passing down the truth of who God was to this next generation. And I want you to look at the formula. The parents... They take shortcuts spiritually. They obey half-heartedly. And what does that produce in their kids? 
idol worship. So the first generation obeys half-heartedly, takes shortcuts spiritually, and that brings about idolatry in their kids' lives. In order to not be like that generation, we need to love God wholeheartedly. We need to apply and reflect on the gospel practically, not academically, not abstractly. We need concrete living of the gospel in our lives. This is why Deuteronomy 6 says that as you're talking, as you're walking, as you're living, as you're going to bed, as you're waking up, whatever you're doing, you need to talk to the people around you, specifically your family and your kids, about how amazing God is. Give personal testimony to why you love God. Don't just tell them about God. Tell them why you love him more than anything in the world. So what's going to happen to this new generation? What's going to happen? They're going to be stuck in a five-fold cycle of sin. You guys are going to get so sick and tired of hearing this five-fold cycle because this is what the whole book of Judges is. So five S's. You can write them down now if you'd like to. Sin brings about servitude, brings about supplication, then salvation, then silence. I'll give those to you again, and we'll go through each of them because this introduction has a preview of all five points of this five-fold cycle. Sin, then servitude. They'll be enslaved to people groups. Then supplication. They're going to cry out to God. They're going to say, please help us. And God's going to save them. Salvation, number four. And then there'll be a period of silence, a period where everything seems to be going okay in the land. Sin, servitude, supplication, salvation, and silence. Let's pick it up in verse 11 through 13, starting with the first point in this five-fold cycle, the point of sin. Verse 11 through 13, Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. They bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Asheroth. Baal. Who is this guy? If you listen to a seminary student, you'll probably hear him pronounce this name Baal, which, let's be honest, that's exactly how you're supposed to pronounce this name in Hebrew. I'm not going to pronounce it that way because, number one, I think it sounds a little bit uppity. Um, Baal. You don't know Hebrew? I do. His name is Baal. Second, I don't understand why people pronounce that in the Hebrew pronunciation, but they don't do any of the other Hebrew pronunciations for any of the other names. They say Baal, but they say Jeremiah. Jeremiah is my favorite Hebrew name. Jeremiah. Why don't we say that when we come to Jeremiah? (laughs) I also don't have guttural skills, so we're just not going to pronounce anything with Hebrew pronunciation. Baal, let's meet this guy. I think we underestimate how powerful this God is was to the Israelites. His name means Lord, Master, Husband. He was a divine owner, a divine ruler. And he was God over two specific things. He was the storm God or the weather God, and he was the fertility God. He's the storm God or the weather God, so, uh, or fertility God. If you want crops, or if you want babies you got to go to Baal. If you want crops, if you want babies, that's a Baal thing. Interesting to note already that the idols that they worshipped were over sections of their lives. Go to Baal for crops and fertility, but you have to go to another God for a completely different issue. Our God rules and reigns over every single aspect of human life. Amen? 
every single aspect of our lives. That's why our God is set apart. He's not human like these gods are made out to be. Just, I'll take care of these specific issues. How would you serve Baal? Uh, You've probably heard in the Bible this idea of um, temple prostitution. To worship Baal, you would go to the temple, and you'd sleep with the temple prostitute, and that would be your form of worship. Now, that makes zero sense to me. I don't understand what that is or where that comes from. But here's the explanation that I found most helpful for me in understanding what they are doing when they go to the temple and worship Baal in this way. I don't know if you've ever tried to teach a little child how to blow their nose. They come to you and they say, boogie, boogie, boogie. You don't know if we're supposed to be dancing right now or if there's something else going on. You look up there, you realize there's something very serious happening in their nose right now. And so you say, let's blow your nose. Give them a a tissue. And they look at it and they start eating it. No, that's not how the boogie's coming out. So you take the tissue and what do you do? You take it and you go, look, look, look. Go, blow. And you show them and then you give it to them. And what do they do? They smile and they go, that's all they do. And you have to take, you have to kind of show them this is what you're supposed to do. That's what's happening with Baal and the temple worship. People were going to the temple to show Baal, hey, we want kids. And I don't know if you remember, but this is how to get kids. This is how you give us kids. So we're going to do this temple prostitution thing. And hopefully that'll remind you that's how you're supposed to produce children for us. It was priming the pump, as it were, to show Baal. This is what's supposed to be done. And now you do that with Astaroth, your wife. You do this with Astaroth and you can give us children. We look at this and we go, this is so foreign. This is so strange. Why do people do this? I think it doesn't make sense to us because if we need food, we go to Ralph's, right? If we need food, we go to Albertson's. I don't think that I've ever gone to Ralph's when I've needed something and they have told me we are all out of it. Now, granted, I don't do a lot of shopping for groceries, but I've never had somebody say they're all out of it. And if they did, I wouldn't think I need to go pray to Baal right now. I would think, well, Albertsons is going to have it. Or if they don't, Vons is going to have it. We never have this issue. If you find out that you can't have children, you're struggling to get pregnant, you don't cry out to Baal. We can get testing done. We can go to doctors. But the Israelites, when they have no crops or they aren't getting pregnant, they say, we don't know what the problem is. We need to call upon God. So what's interesting to note is they did not forsake Yahweh worship and then only worship Baal. They worshiped both. They brought Baal into their Yahweh worship. They said, okay, we'll worship the God of the universe, but maybe he's not close enough to us to know what we need right now. Maybe he's not uh, aware of our needs, so we'll cry out to the God who specifies in crops and fertility. And in bringing Baal into their Yahweh worship, the author of Judges tells us, no, 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 that is completely forsaken. You cannot have two gods put together and worship both of them. And he gives us a description of it down in verse 17. They didn't listen to their judge, for they played the harlot after other gods. This cycle of sin is playing the harlot with other gods. You come into an intense relationship with the idol. Idolatry is spiritual adultery. It's marrying a prostitute. Now, why did they do this? 
They did this because of the first paragraph in verses 6 through 10. They knew all about God, but they didn't know God. If you know God, you're going to want to honor God. If you only know about Him, but you don't truly know Him, you're going to say, well, help me when you can, but I'll go to other people that can help me as well. My question to you and to my heart this morning is, do you know God? Really know Him? If you don't, you're on your first road, on the first step on the road to apostasy. You're on that first beginning stages of apostasy. Because apostasy looks like saying, I know about God, and that's all I need to worry about. Instead of, I intimately know Him. Don't be so proud this morning that you could leave this room close to Jesus, but so close that you'll just leave because you don't know Him. The reality is we don't fall into idolatry because it shimmers, it shines. We see it light gleam on an idol and we look at it and we go, oh, it's beautiful. That's, that's the way you catch, catch fish, right? You, you take something that shimmers and shines and you put it on the water and the fish go. We're not, we don't get trapped in idolatry because of that. We get trapped in idolatry because the idol holds something that aims at our flesh that we love, that we are dragged away by, that entices us and pulls us away. And we compromise in little areas, and when we compromise in a little, we compromise in a lot. Idolatry, all idolatry wants initially from your life is one tiny little area of your life. That's all idolatry wants. Just give me one tiny little area, just one, and if it opens up the door with one area, it will take one area and then another and then another and then another and drag you away. Why? Because John Calvin says it best, the human heart is an idol factory. We are made to love, to worship, to be satisfied in something. And so if it's not being satisfied in God and God alone, it'll be being satisfied in anything else in this world. So sin, the cycle of sin, they move into idolatry. Second, the cycle of, in this fivefold cycle, the step of servitude, servitude starts in sin and then it moves to servitude. This is verses 14 through 15. So the anger of the Lord burns against Israel and he gives them into the hands of plunderers who plunder them. He sells them into the hands of their enemies around them so they could no longer stand before their enemies. And wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil as the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them so that they were severely distressed. You look at these verses and you think, this is not the God of love that I thought we served. But brothers and sisters, God is compassionate towards sinners. And these verses are telling us how he's compassionate towards sinners. His judgment is compassionate. His anger is an expression of his love. His anger is not opposed to his love. It's an expression of his love. It is because he loves his people and cares for them that he is angry when they try to find their satisfaction in that which will ultimately destroy them. He doesn't sit idly by and say, well, go ahead and do whatever you want to do. One commentator says, God is no cold slab of concrete impervious to our carefully defended apostasies. God doesn't look and go, oh, you love something else other than me? Oh, okay, I love you. Go ahead. No, God says that will destroy you. And so I'm going to step in and I'm going to tell you, don't do that. And I'm going to try and get your attention. 
True love always has inside of it true hatred for that which offends what you love. This is something that our, our culture and context knows nothing about. We've redefined love entirely. But just reason with somebody. If you say that you love Jewish people, you say you really love Jewish people, and then you say, but I don't really think the Holocaust was a big deal. You cannot tell me you love Jewish people and can sit idly by it, the Holocaust. True love has inside of it true hatred. And if you tell me you love Jewish people, you are going to hate what happened at the Holocaust. That was evil. And you're going to have an expression of your love as hatred for that which offends what you love. That's what God does with us. God hates it when we move away from him, when we seek to find satisfaction in anything other than him. And so God's mercy in enslaving us in those desires is his mercy for us. God's judgment in mercy is seen in these verses. And I want to just show you two places where his mercy in judgment is seen. If you look at verse 21, drop down to verse 21. God said, I'm not going to drive any of these people groups out from before you. I'm not letting any of them go. Why? Verse 22, in order to test Israel by them, whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their fathers did or not. I'm going to let them enslave you. Now there's mercy in that judgment. That's judgment, but there's mercy. And the mercy is there because God is graciously giving them a test and you can pass a test. You can succeed. He's not saying, I'm done with you. I've had it and I'm done. He says, no, no, I'm still working with you. And I'm going to give you a test that you can pass to show, oh wait, God is better by far than anything in this world. There's mercy in his judgment. Secondly, in verses 1 and 2 in chapter 3, God says, these are the nations which the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is all who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan in order that the generations of the sons of Israel might be taught war, those who had not experienced it formerly. What's happening in these verses? Well, I'm going to leave. God says, I'm going to judge you by leaving these people so that they will enslave you. And it's merciful. Why? Because God said, you don't know me. You know about me, but you don't know me. And so I'm going to leave these people here so that I can reveal myself to you in glorious ways that will manifest my glory to those that don't really know me. And he says it here, they didn't experience war. They hadn't experienced the wars that the previous generation had experienced. This generation didn't know anything about Jericho. They, didn't, they hadn't seen what had happened. They knew about it, but they hadn't seen it. And so God says, you know what? I'm going to leave these people group. I'm going to leave them here as judgment to you, but there's mercy inside of that judgment. Number one, I'm giving you a test and you can pass that. And number two, I'm going to leave these people here so that when you cry out to me, I will do the work on your behalf in miraculous ways and you will know me. This is mercy inside of judgment. So he lets them go into servitude, but his anger is not opposed to his love. His judgment is an expression of his love. The third step, not only sin and servitude, but supplication. Number three, supplication. In their distress, end of verse 15, they're going to cry out to God. God's going to raise up, verse 16, judges who deliver them from the hands of those who plundered them. They're not going to listen to the judges, for they played the harlot after the other gods and bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked. 
and obeying the commandments of the Lord, they did not do as their fathers. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge because the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. He was moved to compassion. These people stuck in servitude, stuck in slavery, cry out to God. And that word groaning, it should remind you of Exodus. This is what they did in Egypt. They groaned in Egypt and God heard their groaning. And he tells Moses, I heard the groaning of my people and I want to deliver them. He's moved with compassion. And what does he do? He saves them. As they groan, by the way, this isn't a supplication of repentance. This is a supplication of, I don't like my circumstances and we need help. And God still acts. He does not say, "Uh, I'm waiting until you truly repent. He says, okay, I'll move, I'll act, I'll work. That brings us to the fourth step in this cycle, salvation. We have sin, servitude, supplication, and now salvation. And we read most of it already, but if we finish out verse 19, it came about when the judge died, they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways, so the anger burned, anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he said, because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers and has not listened to my voice, I'm also no longer going to drive them out, uh, any of the nations out which Joshua left when he died. I'm going to save you And then you still are going to keep stuck in this cycle and I'm going to bring a judge to save and I'm going to bring an oppressor to oppress you and I'm going to bring a judge to save and an oppressor to oppress you. But I'm going to save. Verse 16, I'm going to raise up judges and I'm going to deliver you. The word judge is a deliverer. I'm going to raise up deliverers to deliver you. As they are enslaved in idolatry, God says, I'm getting you out. And if you put verse 14 and 16 together, I think you see the beauty of our God on display. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and then God's going to raise up judges. He's angry. He's going to allow them to be enslaved, and then he's going to deliver them because he loves them. And then at the end of this fourfold cycle thus far, we get our fifth step in this cycle. And that's verse 23. The Lord allowed those nations to remain, not driving them out quickly. And he did not give them into the hands of Joshua. So they just stayed there. And this is the the last step in this cycle is that of silence. So we've got sin, which leads to servitude, which leads to crying out and supplication, which leads to deliverance and salvation, which leads to peace in the land. But it's interesting to note because the peace gets progressively smaller and smaller. We start off and there's 40 years of peace after God delivers a people group. Then there's 20. And it goes to eight and then to two and then a couple months. Slowly but surely, the peace gets smaller and smaller. But there's our four or five-fold steps in this cycle, the five-fold cycle of the book of Judges. And then chapter three, we already read verses one and two. And these are all in verses three, four, Five and six, it tells us a setting up for Othniel. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines, the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Hivites, who lived in Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon, as far as Labo Hamath. They were for testing Israel to find out if they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers through Moses. The sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, 
the Hivites and the Jebusites. They took their daughters for themselves as wives and gave their own daughters to their sons, and they served their gods. Thus ends the second introduction and the summary statement of the book of Judges. Now, let's dive into the first judge. This judge, his name is Othniel, and this is just verses 7 through 11. Othniel is the first judge, verses 7 through 11. And Othniel, the reason why I wanted to do this this morning, though he could receive a sermon of his own, I think it'd be helpful. I don't know if you were like me growing up, when I would learn a new card game, uh, my parents would teach me the card game or somebody would teach me the card game and they'd, they'd teach, they'd explain it. And then they'd show me the cards. And then after me asking a bunch of questions and them being answered, we would always have this face-up round. I don't know if you guys had this, where let's play with the cards face-up. We don't have to hide them. We don't have to put them in our hand. Just deal them out and then just put them out so that we can show you. This is what you should play. This would be helpful here. This is what you'd have a face-up hand, a face-up round. And then, okay, now let's play for real. Othniel is really that face-up round. Othniel is saying, hey, I want to show you what the rest of this book is going to look like. So this is an easy one. There are very little details in this. This will show us that five-fold cycle so easily. You can plug and play everything into that, and boom, this is the way that Judges is going to go. It's a good face-up round of cards. After 65 verses of background material, we dive into the first judge. There's 12 judges in the book of Judges. I believe that they're specifically picked out, 12 to mirror the 12 tribes of Israel, complete folly, fullness of disobedience, and fullness of salvation and grace offered. We're going to get to a bunch of other well-known judges. Next week's one of my favorite judges. He's a lefty like me. I call him the Southpaw Savior. He's going to do some amazing things, and stuff is going to come out of this book that you didn't think was ever in this book. And because of your Lack of expression based off of that. I know that you don't know this account because there's crazy stuff that happens. After Ehud, we have a judge that you do know who's going to speak softly and carry a hammer and drive a nail through a man's head. It's going to be amazing. We obviously have Samson that we're going to get to in chapter 17. You know all about Samson. So much happens with Samson. We might have to take him in pieces He does amazing things. He takes a donkey's jawbone and kills a bunch of Philistines. He ties foxes together, ties them together, and sets them on fire. And if you've ever asked the question, what does the fox say, come back in chapter 17 and you will know what the fox says. But this this judge, it's so small. Five tiny little verses, as I do every time I'm studying, I ask a billion questions about the passage, and I want to have those questions answered by the text. And this passage answers so few questions. Let's read it. I'll tell you some of the questions that I have, and then we'll dive into it. Verse 7, the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. There's sin. They forgot the Lord their God. They served the Baals and the Asheroth. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, so he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, and the sons of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. So there's servitude. Verse 9, when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them. There's 
supplication and salvation. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he delivered Israel. And when he went out to war, the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hands so that he prevailed over this man. And the land had rest for 40 years. There's silence, rest, peace. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So there's our fivefold cycle. We have sin, servitude, supplication, salvation, and silence. So I read this and I have so many questions. How? Did they serve the Baals? What did it look like? Where were the temples? Where were the altars to Baal? Where is this passage taking place? Who is this man named Kushan Rishathaim? And am I going to be able to say his name correctly every time that I come to it? Where's the dialogue? We have no words from Othniel. Who is this guy? This passage answers so few questions, and I think it does that for a reason. Because it just wants to show us, you just saw the introduction to the book, you've just seen the preview, now see it worked out in one judge, and then we'll get more specific as we keep going. So, let's look at it together. Just the same five points. Sin, verse 7. The sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and forgot the Lord their God, and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. They forgot the Lord. This is not a passive word. This is not me this morning trying to figure out where my keys are because I forgot where I left them. Forgetting in the Bible is a choosing. It's a choice. Choosing not to remember. You remember God says this about himself, right? He will not remember our sin. He will not bring it up anymore. And some people translate that as he forgets our sin. But can God forget anything? God can't forget anything. He's God. He knows everything. And if he can forget something, if something slips his mind, then he ceases to be omniscient and therefore ceases to be God. God knows everything. He can't forget anything. But the Hebrew word that's used there, that's translated in most Bibles as will not remember, that's a great translation. It's the same word here for forget. It's a choosing. It's a choice. I will not bring this up anymore. God says, you sinned, I know you sinned, and I know your sin, and I'm never going to forget your sin, but I will never bring it back up before you ever again. It's removed as far as the east is from the west. I'm never going to bring it back up in front of your face ever again. He doesn't forget it. He chooses not to bring it back up again. That's the exact same thing that the children of Israel are doing. They don't forget God. They just choose not to bring him up. In their daily living, in their daily life, they don't choose to bring him up. We like Baal, we like Ashtaroth, we like all these other gods, but we're not going to talk about God. We're not going to talk about Yahweh. We're not going to talk about Him. We're not going to bring Him up. We're going to choose just not to remember Him. This is such a profound picture of what we do in our complacency. If you're not actively involved in choosing to remember God, you will be forgetting Him, actively forgetting Him. Our hearts are like buckets of water on a very cold day. They will freeze over unless we are regularly smashing the ice that's forming. You and I, when we gather for church, we're just passing out ice picks for each other. Our hearts are the bucket of water on a freezing cold day and are constantly a layer of ice is being formed on top of them. And when we gather together and we take the word of God and we speak to one another and sing to one another, the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, we are giving each other ice picks to smash through the ice of our hearts to say, remember God, don't forget him, remember him. This is why we need each other. 
That's why I say a lot. I, I go to church to stay saved. I go to church to make sure that that layer of ice does not form on my heart. It's forming even now as we speak. And so we need to remember God. The, rem- the remedy to reverse our heart forgetting is remembering. We must remember. Turn to 2 Peter really quickly. 2 Peter chapter 1. You can keep your little ribbon in Judges or a finger there in Judges. 2 Peter chapter 1. I want you to see this because I think Peter does such a great job saying exactly what God is speaking to our hearts in the book of Judges. 2 Peter chapter 1. Verse 5, now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, he's going to tell us to do something. Supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he's going to say, but if you're lacking these, here's why and here's what to do. I think the church in America says, if you're lacking in these areas of moral qualities, you're not trying hard enough, and you need to try harder. I think that's a sermon that is preached from almost every pulpit at one point or another in America. You know what? You need to try harder. That's what this book is about. It's a book of rules that you're failing, and you need to work harder. Is that what Peter is going to tell us? Verse 9, for he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten the purification from former sins. If you are struggling with obedience, it's because you have forgotten the gospel. It's not because you're not trying hard enough. It's because you've forgotten what Jesus has done for you. This isn't a book of rules that we need to live by. This is a book that tells us we cannot live according to the rules. That's why Jesus needed to show up and live our perfect sinless life for us so that we could be perfect because of his work, not our own. And so Peter says that's the gospel. And when you're struggling with obedience, you're struggling because you're forgetting the gospel. So what are you supposed to do? Drop down to verse 12. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things. Even though you already know them, And you've been establishing the truth which is present in you. You know the truth, but you're forgetting. And that's what I'm here for, Peter says. I'm here to remind you, don't forget. That's why we gather in small groups. What sin are you involved in that shows you're forgetting the gospel? What do you need to remember about Jesus that will make the sin that you love right now become so disgusting in your sight and Jesus so lovely in your sight that you won't be able to help but obey him. That's what we are together as the church, to help each other remember. No, it's not just try harder. It's you are forgetting who you are and you need to remember the gospel. How do we remember? We remember through church, through community, through fellowship, through communion, through singing, through reading. We cannot be like the Israelites in the book of Judges who just Choose not to bring God up. Otherwise, we will forget. Second point. We see sin back in Judges chapter 3. We see sin in verse 7. They serve the Baals. They serve the Asherah. Servitude. Second point. Servitude. Verse 8. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim and the king of Mesopotamia 
And the sons of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim for eight years. God is angry. And again, this is great news. This is great news that God is angry because we don't see a blank space after Israel's sin. God cares. He's not cold. He's not indifferent. And in his mercy, he acts to judge and to bring them back to himself. So I ask you again, do you see hope in God's anger? Do you see hope in his anger? He cares. He cares so much for Israel that he will not allow Israel to serve Baal without him interfering and stopping it. Is God's judgment happening in your life? That means that God cares. Listen to him. Hear it and receive it as mercy because he's trying to get your attention and he will not let you go. So he hands them over to this man named Kushan Rishathaim, which is a beautiful play on words in Hebrew. He's from Mesopotamia, which in your note in the Bible, it's, it's Aram, uh, Aram of uh, Naithaim, which Rishathaim sounds like Naithaim, which it's a play on words. His name is Kushan, and Rishathaim means doubly wicked, and Aram of Naithaim means uh, a double rivers. So he is the king of double rivers, but he's the king of double wickedness. This man is an evil man. So sin, servitude, third, supplication. When the sons of Israel, verse 9, cried out to the Lord. Notice it took them eight years to do this. They're enslaved for eight years, and at the end of eight years, they go, you know what, we should just ask God to help us. It took them eight years. How often does it take us far too long to say, God, help. I need you. Please step in. Eight years. They cry out for help. That word for cry is the same word for groaning. It's a word for... Uh, to yelp, not like on your phone for restaurants, but a cry of pain and suffering. You're, you're crying out because you're in pain. It's not a, a cry of repentance. It's worldly sorrow that's going to lead to death. It's not godly sorrow leading to repentance. What is the biggest pointer of what kind of sorrow you have? As you weep over your sins, as we talked about last week, how do you know if you're mourning over sins is worldly sorrow or godly sorrow. You know based on what happens afterwards. Do you change? If you change, it's godly sorrow that has led to change. So they cry out. What does God do? Number four, salvation. Middle of verse nine, he raises up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them. This man's name is Othniel. He's the son of Kenaz. He's Caleb's younger brother, and that's all we know about him. Remember what I, I said? We need to be careful as we study narratives in the Old Testament to watch out for those killer bees. Be like Othniel. Be like the judges. Be like Israel. Don't be like Israel. Be, be, be. We've got to be careful when we study narratives. Here are some of the bees, the killer bees that I ran across this week as I was studying this passage. We should be like Othniel because he's humble. I don't know how you get that from this passage, that he's humble. Maybe you can go back to chapter 1 and say he was a conqueror, he's a good warrior, and he asked his wife to ask for land. Does that make him humble or does that make him not a good leader? He was old. Be like Othniel because he's old. Literally, this is what it said. He was probably around 65 to 70 years, 70 years old. No offense to older people. We love old people. We all get old. But I don't think that's the point of this passage. Be like Othniel and in your old age follow God. That's a great point and you should do that. But I don't think that's what Othniel's trying to teach us. My favorite is, be like Othniel. He's available. Why? Because he exists on the planet? Like, 
What, what tells us that he's waiting upon God to call on him to do this? These are the killer bees. I'll tell you the truth. I have no idea why Othniel is the first judge. I have no idea who he is or why he was picked by God. And I think that's the focus. The focus is not on who this guy is. The focus is on who sent the guy. God is the hero, not Othniel. God's the one who raises up the deliverer, and God's the one who makes it happen. Verse 10, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he delivered Israel. Who's the he? The Spirit of the Lord came upon Othniel, and Othniel judged Israel? Or the Spirit of the Lord, or God himself, judged Israel, delivered Israel? God's behind Othniel, and everything Othniel does, he's doing because God is graciously raising him up. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, and when he goes out to war, the Lord gives Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, so that he prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. Now, our problem is not that we don't know who Othniel is. Our problem is that we know how God works and delivers sinful people, and we just kind of yawn at it. We just kind of go, yeah, that's the cycle. We've got to salvation, now we're silence. We look at it, and we think, Okay, that's great. I know our God's amazing and he saves wicked people based off of no merit of their own. That's awesome. What's for lunch today? We just move on. If we fail to see, if we fail to feel, if we fail to delight in the miracle of God's own nature as a gracious and loving God, maybe we're strangers rather than partakers of such unbelievable grace. We need to remember God's grace. He delivers them. And between verses 10 and 11... The people of Israel have an opportunity never to go back in their sin again. God has saved them and has said, here's the way to live righteously and you can do it. We know that they're not going to. And that leads to number five, there's silence. Verse 11, the land had rest for 40 years and Othniel the son of Kenaz died. So we have our five-fold cycle. We see sin, we see servitude, supplication, salvation, and silence. Othniel is a great judge. He's an amazing deliverer. He does exactly what God says, and the peace lasts as long as Othniel lasts. As long as the judge lives, the peace remains. The silence exists. But the problem with every single judge in the Bible, in the book of Judges, is that every judge will die. Othniel dies and they go back into the cycle. That's why you and I need a deliverer who will never die. And we have one. The true judge, the true deliverer is not Othniel, it's not Gideon, it's not Samson. The true deliverer is Jesus, who died and conquered death once and for all so that we can have silence and peace and rest in our hearts for all of eternity. So we see this second introduction, and we see the first judge of Israel, how do we wrap it all up? In conclusion, just three points. Number one, we need to unmask worldliness. We talked about this a little bit today in Sunday school. God says, get these people out because, as Hannah said, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Just a tiny little bit of worldliness will creep in, tiny little bit of idolatry will creep in, and will send you into compromise. The Israelites lived in the land, and as they did that and let the pagan nations live around them, the pagan nations began to be enticing. So be careful. Now, don't be monks. We need to be in the world, just not of the world. Don't be monks. Don't go into a monastery. Be in the world. But don't let the world be in you. 
This is what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. Unmask the lies of sin and the lies of worldliness. See that it always leads to slavery. It always leads to being stuck under the judgment of God and stuck in slavery to your idolatry. Unmask it. Show it for what it is. Number two, cry out in repentance. Cry out in repentance. We see this fivefold cycle of Israel. And while we condemn them and think, man, why are they doing this? I don't get it. We inside kind of go, I do get it. We see this cycle in our own lives. Sin, fall into sin. God, please, we get the consequences of our sin. God, please save us. God redeems us. He brings us out of it. And then we go back into it. If you are enslaved to idolatry, you are helpless and you are hopeless. And the way out is to admit that you're helpless and you're hopeless. If you're stuck in idolatry, if you're stuck enslaved to sin, the way out is not try harder. The way out is not figure this out on your own. The way out is to say, I'm helpless, I'm hopeless. Please, Jesus, save me. Only when you realize you are truly helpless and hopeless. That's why proud people can't get to heaven, right? This is what uh, Matthew chapter 5 says. Jesus tells us, the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of God. The people who say, I've got nothing to offer you, God. I need you to do all the work for me. Only then are you going to cry out to Jesus when you realize you're hopeless and you're helpless. But we'll see time and time again in Judges, behind all of their sin, there's salvation to be received. So cry out to him today. Press into his grace. The only way we get out of this cycle of sin is God's grace alone. And that leads us to number three. Don't just unmask worldliness for what it is. Don't just cry out in repentance, but pursue, treasure, cherish, follow, love Jesus. Love Jesus. He is the true deliverer, the only one who never did that which was right in his own eyes. He's the only judge who died but then came back to life conquering death once and for all so that we never, ever have to fear death. Israel had a choice before them every day. Follow the idols, follow the false gods, follow the worldly people, or follow the deliverer that God has sent. And we have the exact same choice before us every day. Follow our sin, follow our flesh, follow the worldly pagan nations around us, or follow the deliverer that God has sent. And he has sent a deliverer, and his name is Jesus. So are you going to follow other gods? Are you going to follow worldliness? Are you going to follow your own flesh? Or today, will you choose to follow the deliverer, the only deliverer that God has sent to give us life eternal? His name is Jesus. And if you follow him, and you cling to him, though you will get stuck in this five-fold cycle of sin, he will hold you fast, and he'll never let you go. And as you press into remembering his love, you'll walk with him in obedience. Father, we thank you so much for the book of Judges and our time in your word this morning. We are so grateful for this picture that we have yet again of sin, of consequence, of crying out to you and of your grace and saving. And so we want to respond by thanking you that you and your grace save those who are so wicked, so messed up, 
crying out, not even in repentance, but just help, deliver, deliver. 